0: private journey with Jesus, Jesus is just the beginning. Connecting with others intensifies our light. Together we bring hope to the world. Christ. You. Me. Colab. Awesome. Good to see you guys. Um, So this morning, we're jumping back into our CoLab series. If you weren't here last week, uh, CoLab is short for collaboration. And what we're doing is we're going through the book of Philippians together and picking up on certain themes and looking at what Paul was saying to that community then. Uh, But before we look at the scripture today, I want us to start with a bit of a... um, a case study or a bit of an exercise. Now I'm not gonna ask you to do heaps because I know you guys get all awkward and uncomfortable if I ask you to do too much. So don't worry about that. All I gotta ask you to do is you just gotta raise up your hand on the thing you think is right. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna throw out some case studies and I want you to be thinking of what is the most loving thing to do in that scenario. Okay, that's it. You just have to think what is the most loving thing to do. So it's, uh, it's the middle of the day and you're walking through town. And you are, you've are you just parked and you're on your way to a very, very important meeting that you just absolutely cannot be late for. And as you're walking, uh, you notice a person who's been sleeping on the street comes up and approaches you. And as they approach you, you, your heart starts to beat a little bit faster and you're like, oh no, because you know in your pocket, you've got a fiver. You've just bought a coffee and you had some change. So in your pocket, you've got a fiver right there. And this person comes up and tells you, hey, look, I'm sorry. I don't want to bother you. I've just had a really... Really rough week and uh, the day is coming through and I've got no money for food. Uh, Do you have any money that you could spare? And as he tells you the story, you can smell something on his breath. Now the question is, what is the most loving thing to do? You've got this fiver in your pocket. You can either give it to him or you can say, sorry, I can't. And you can make it on your way to the meeting. Right, So these these are your two options, and you need to decide what is the most loving thing to do. There's no judgment, all you gotta do is raise your hand, it's okay. How many of you would give him the fiver in your pocket? Okay, cool. How many of you would say, sorry, I gotta get to my meeting? How many of you feel too awkward to raise your hands? (laughs) There we go. All right. So we're conflicted. All right. Uh, another hypothetical question. Uh, so imagine you are a parent. Now, I know not everyone is, but imagine you are a parent and you've got a couple kids in your house and your oldest child, uh, she's, she's 17 and she started hanging out with the wrong crowd. And so she started drinking and she started doing drugs. And you've noticed recently, she's brought the drugs into the household and she's doing drugs in your house. And you're at this stage where she's 17 and you're not quite sure what to do. And so you have this dilemma of, do you put down a hard line and say no? And if you say no, she's probably, you have to kick her out. So you have this choice of, do you kick her out because she's going to be a potential bad influence on your other children who are watching her doing drugs in your own household But if you kick her out, you know that she might very likely go and stay with one of her friend's house or end up with that group. She's already in the wrong crowd. She ends up more tightly integrated into them, which could lead her in a downward spiral. You've got this situation. What's the most loving thing to do? Do you say, sorry, you need to leave if you're going to be doing drugs in this household? Because she's refused to stop doing drugs. Do you ask her to leave or do you allow her to stay and just kind of keep on what she's doing in your household? How many of you would ask her to leave? Okay, how many of you would let her stay? Okay, cool. This is fascinating. And there's a lot of you that still feel too awkward. It's okay, there's no judgment. We're an open community here, right? All right, this last one's maybe a little bit easier. Uh, You have a friend who is uh, dating someone who you really disapprove of. Like you really really disapprove of this person, but your friend has just been through a lot recently. And this relationship that she's in seems like it's the, it's the brightest thing on her horizon. Okay. This relationship is the, the light of her life at the moment, even though you just really don't like the person that she's dating. Okay. So there's this difficult situation is the most loving thing to confront her and say, I really think this is an unhealthy relationship which runs the risk of pushing you out. She might cut you off completely, and then you no longer have a space to be in that conversation, dialogue with her. Or is the most loving thing to just journey with her and let her find it out on her own? How many of you would confront her about the person that she's dating? Okay. And how many of you would just kind of ride it out and choose to be the person who supports her kind of along the way? Right. See, to me, this is, this is fascinating, because This this morning, what we're going to be talking about, if this will work, haha, we're talking about is love. And it's a funny thing because it's often something that we talk about. We're like, oh, love is wonderful. You just need to love people. As Christians, we just need to be really loving. We should just always love people. But even in this room, just us in this room who theoretically would be on a similar page, there is wide difference on what we assume to be the most loving thing to do. And so we can all say that, yeah, we want to be loving, but how that love works out can be very, very different, which makes it very, very difficult and complex if we're all trying to love one another. But that definition of love seems to change all the time from person to person. So love is what we're looking at. So just recapping a little bit last week, We had this wonderful moment where Paul was talking to the Philippians and he's doing in this opening prayer where he's just so thankful and joyful for who they are. He says, I thank my God. Every time I remember you In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. And the reason that we looked at this, why was he so filled with joy? Why was he so excited about the Philippians? It's because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And we realized that partnership isn't just the fact that they gave him some money to help him while he was in prison. This word partnership is this word koinonia. It was this, he was so thankful because they lived the Christian community by the way that they loved one another and cared for one another. They were proclaiming the gospel to everyone around them. And he was just so thankful for that. And so what we're going to pick up on today is Paul kind of continues and begins to develop those themes. And as he prays for them, he prays something that I think is very interesting. So he continues on saying, it's right for me to feel all this way about all of you. Since I have you in my heart, whether I'm in chains or chains, or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me, which is to say, look, I can trust you. And you know that I love you because you share in the same struggles that I do. You, you are undergoing the same similar persecution in Philippi that I am facing here in Rome while I'm in jail. And God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So again, the sense of overflowing love and pride for this community in Philippi. And then Paul moves forward into a prayer. And it's this prayer that I think is fascinating. And this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. First of all, that's a very eloquent and beautiful prayer. I wish I could one day pray as cool as Paul prays, but then no one would probably understand me and we'd need sermons to understand prayers, which would be counterintuitive. Um, It's coming through, isn't it? So there's one thing that I think is fascinating and it's this line of He prays that their love will abound more and more, which is fascinating because he spent the whole first few verses talking about how great their love for one another is. And what's his main prayer that he prays for them? He says, I pray that your love will abound more and more. And then he uses two words that we normally don't connect with love. I pray that your love will abound more in knowledge and in insight, which is odd because for us, love is often an emotional thing. It's a sense of caring for someone. It's a a, a sense of, oh man, I really want to love this person. I, I like them. I want to hang out with them. Instead, Paul's prayer is that the love grows not in emotion, but in knowledge and in insight. Which to me is fascinating because if we look at the understanding of love today in popular culture, you'd think it's all settled and we don't really need to grow in knowledge or insight about love. I mean, we have all the songs that have solved it for us, right? I mean, the Beatles wrote the whole song for us. All you need is love. Hey, you guys are doing pretty good. Or um, as the famous crooner, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. There you go. See, it's good. It's good. Or um, so they make it sound really simple. All the world needs is love love is all you need. If the world just had more love, it'd be simple. To me, this whole viewpoint was epitomized last year at the Super Bowl. I don't know, probably don't watch a lot of the Super Bowl because I'm American. It's a religious rite that you have to. The Super Bowl is America's greatest religious ceremony. And uh, what happened was Coldplay performed. And at the end of their performance, they did this fascinating thing where they got this entire crowd to flip up these cards and it turned it all into a rainbow, which is so cool. And the main tagline, if you can't read it, says, believe in love. Which is cool, eh? You're like, wow, good on you, Coldplay. But at the same time, after I, when I first saw it, I thought, this is so cool. But the more I thought about it, the more I became frustrated because I was like, well, if it was that simple, we'd have done it already, right? Like, if all you had to do was just believe in love, then we wouldn't have wars. We wouldn't have fighting. We wouldn't have church splits. Families wouldn't break down on the time. Marriages wouldn't dissolve. If all we had to do is just believe in love then we'd be sorted. But like we looked at just earlier, love is complex. And if love is just some static word as some noun, then we can change it and shift it to use it to whatever we want it to look like. For example, in America, there's a church called the Westboro Baptist Church. Anyone familiar with them? They are, we use church with quotation marks, really. Um, they're, They're a church in America that's independent. They're not associated with the wider Baptist network. Um, And they have a very strong theology of God and the law, and God is very angry with people who break the law. And so the way that they've begun to outwork that is they um, do a lot of picketing and protesting in often the most horrendous ways. I actually had to spend about 15 minutes going through Google images to try and find their least offensive signs. These are their least offensive ones, which is awful. Um, But what they do, is they would go to soldiers' funerals And they would hold up signs um, saying that God hates them, God is glad that these soldiers are in hell. Uh, They would go to any parades or any concerts or any festivals, holding up signs saying that God hates gays and it's gays who are single handedly responsible for death in America. And they have this awful, awful rhetoric. Awful. It's terrible. And so it's odd that in a church, it's heaps of another church's slogans that I'd feel uncomfortable showing you because it feels so hate filled. The great paradox is all of us can look at that and say, that is obviously not loving, right? We, objectively, we could say that is a terrible thing to do. But from within their own worldview, they are trying to be loving. Within their own understanding of who God is, And because they have this, I would say, distorted view of God who's rejoicing in pushing people into hell, their responsibility is to go and tell people, scare people into the knowledge that God is ready to punish them. And if they can scare them enough and confront them in the face with enough truth, then really they're actually loving them because then those people might hopefully turn to repentance. You can listen to interviews of the leaders of the church. For them, this is an expression of their love. all you need is love. Hopefully not that. See how it gets complicated? For them, this is their expression of love. Now, it's easier for us to look at this and be like, well, that's bad. You can't say that that's love. But what happens when love even has good good thoughts or a good uh, good intention behind it? Uh, this this is an image of secondhand clothing. And it's a it's a wonderful thing that often we as Christians will like to do. We have clothing that we're no longer using, and so what we want to do is we want to donate it to someone else who can be able to use it more. We don't want to be wasteful, and we know that some people are worse off than us, so we think, let's donate our clothing to charity. And it's a, it's a nice, loving thing to do. It's true. Uh, the issue is... Um, this happens all over the world. Countries all over the world will donate their clothing. And Oxfam, a independent charity, has estimated that about 70% of all donated clothes end up in sub-Saharan Africa, of all over the world. So it's hundreds and hundreds of tons of clothing all get shipped and mass sold into Africa. And so what happens is that these shirts and these clothing then go on the local markets and they're able to be sold at a fraction of the price. So you can go and you can get a t-shirt for 50 cents. You can get a pair of jeans for $1.50 and you can get clothes for relatively cheap. And so in one sense, we can feel like, oh, hey, that's a good loving expression. We donate clothes. It goes to people who have less money and it really helps them. The issue is that although that feels good to us and it's loving, it's not that simple because as these clothes have flooded sub-Saharan African economies, it has destroyed the clothing and textile industries in the nations themselves. Uh, They estimate that in Ghana, since 1980, from 1980 to 2000, during those 20-year periods, and 1980 is when most of the clothes began to get shipped to sub-Saharan Africa. is the beginning of that trend. In that 20-year time period, employment in the clothing and textile industries in Ghana alone dropped by 80%. And so local clothing makers, cotton workers, seamstresses, Tailors, all have basically gotten put out of business. And what it's done is it's created the system of dependency, often within quite a few of these nations' economies, because they are now reliant upon secondhand clothing from Western nations by which to support their own people. And it means that no local jobs or employment will ever actually grow or develop as long as they're getting undercut by our offshoots. And quite a few countries have actually gone through processes of banning imported clothing in order to give their economy a fighting chance. It's complicated, isn't it? Even for us, in our expression of love, we're trying to do the right thing. We're trying to do the most loving thing. Often that loving thing isn't actually so loving for the person who receives it. Love is complicated. It's, it's complex. It doesn't always fit into the boxes that we necessarily think. And I think this is the reason why Paul wrote to the Philippians. Can you imagine the Philippians, right? They're this, we talked about this last week. They're this young, struggling church made up of all kinds of different people. We looked at uh, the Roman soldier. We looked at Lydia, who was a dealer, a merchant of cloth. There was the slave girl who had the demon cast out of her, a widely different group. And you can imagine as they're facing the pressures of a Roman society, where everything they do is an offering and of allegiance to Caesar, but they need to somehow say that Jesus is actually Lord and savior instead of Caesar. You can imagine this young community arguing about what the most loving thing to do is. So say they want to go and be a part of the market, but to be a part of the market, you need to be there early in the day and participate in the ceremony that hails Jesus Christ as Lord and savior. Can you imagine them as a community fighting about that? The Roman soldier, who's probably just left out of that, come out of that, says, no, there's no way we can sacrifice on that. We cannot compromise to Caesar. I've just come out of that. Jesus is the only Lord and Savior, and I will not give my life back to him. But then imagine Lydia, who's a merchant, saying, well, look, if we're there, we're not necessarily affirming Caesar is Lord. What we're doing is we're engaging relationship with our local communities. Maybe we shouldn't worry so much about these sacrifices or notes of incense to Caesar. Maybe it's the most loving thing for us to do is an engage in the community and the economy of our local group. And maybe the young slave girl is looking at it saying, but you both are still propagating the system by which slaves are still kept. None of you are challenging that. So how is the most loving thing to do to give money to people who are going to go buy and sell slaves? Can you imagine how complicated it was? how do you know how best to love how do you even know what love looks like in your local context and this is why i think paul's prayer is so fascinating that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight grow more in knowledge and an insight. Grow more in knowing how to love. And why do we need to grow? So that you may know what is best. And you'll be able to understand how to remain pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Have you faced, have you been in that scenario where you've tried to love someone? Often this comes apart most easily in our close relationships with partners, spouses, and family members. As we try to do the loving thing, it ends up blowing in our face, blowing up in our faces. And we are left wondering, well, what am I meant to do here? How am I meant to love this person when they make it so hard for me to love them? Paul realized that the Philippians must have been going through that. And so to me, the most fascinating thing about this is how did they grow through knowledge and an insight? Because as we can see, if love is just this word that remains up here in the ether, then we can twist it into whatever we want it to be. Well, loving is the most, the most loving thing I can do is tell people they're going to hell. Well, loving, the most loving thing I can do is give all my clothes away and undercut other economies. Loving, love is the most, the lowest loving thing I can do is just sit here and not bother people with something. I should, probably shouldn't confront them because that wouldn't feel very loving to them. As long as love stays as this term, then it can be changed and twisted into whatever we want. And there's no knowledge. There's no insight. It's, it's, it's too fluid, but there's one phrase in here that Paul says that I would glance over but is so fascinating. It's this last line of the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Love, knowledge, insight, and fruit that comes through Jesus Christ. Love in and through Jesus Christ. When we read that phrase, I would often read it as just some theological embellishment. eh? It's just something that Paul tacks on the end being like, well, that'd probably sound good at the end of a prayer. So I'll check Jesus's name in it and then it's all theologically. Okay. But once you understand that love goes in and through Jesus Christ, it transforms the way that we love one another. Uh, A theologian by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, was writing about this. He was a theologian in like the 1940s and particularly was a German in the midst of the rise of Nazi Germany and Hitler. And he had this huge difficulty of understanding and wrestling with what is love? What is the most loving thing to do in the midst of a nation following after a fascist leader? And so in this little small book, he wrote the the most incredible phrase. He said that there is no community and there is no love except in and through Jesus Christ. And the reason he said this is he says, look, human love, as long as we are loving one another for one another, that love is impure. Often as humans, uh, our love is elicited by the thing out there. So we see a mountain, it comes to us and we love it. Or we meet a person who's really wonderful, so we want to love them. The love is grown by what we see. But Bonhoeffer says, as long as we love that way, love is always selfish. It's always coming inwards. It's always taking, it's holding on to. You love people for what you can get out of them. You love them in a way you think they need to be loved. You love them in a way that makes you feel good and makes you feel validated. So you give away your clothes because you feel better without actually loving the person. Bonhoeffer says there is no love except through Jesus Christ. Because once we love in and through Jesus Christ, then our love has to look different. Our love has to look like his love. Love no longer remains this vague, abstract phrase that we can twist into whatever we want. Love suddenly is a name and a person and a person who lays claim to us in the way we live our lives. And Bonhoeffer says, once we love through Jesus, then we have to love them as Jesus. And the fascinating thing about Jesus' love is it's so radically different from anything you and I understand. It's easy for us to read through the gospels and again, get really acquainted with the way that Jesus loved. But the fascinating thing is if you actually look and take the time reading through these scriptures is you find that no one understood the way that Jesus loved. No one. It was mind boggling to every single person that he came across. It just didn't, it never made sense. Why would, why would the most loving thing for Jesus to do is to sit alone with this woman at the well Man, can you, can you imagine what everyone would have said about him? Can you imagine what they would have thought about him? Her reputation was already in the dumps. It was probably going to go worse because she's probably seduced this rabbi. But now Jesus said, this is the most loving thing to do. Jesus walking along the road, well, out of all the needy people he could have singled out, out of all the needy people he could have come to, instead he focuses on this rich tax, tax collector climbing in a tree. A tax collector that everybody else knew was ripping the community off for his own personal gain. The most loving thing Jesus should have done is rebuked that man and said, give the money back now. Instead, Jesus saw Zacchaeus called him down, looked at him in the eye and showed him love. And that love suddenly transformed Zacchaeus in a way that Zacchaeus now responded in a way that no one else expected. He no longer was about financial gain, but he just paid it all back more and above and beyond what he ever would have expected. The love of Christ is so surprising and it's different because it doesn't fit into our worldviews. The love of God is not grown by what comes out of it. The love of God finds what's undeserving of it and transforms it into what it needs to be. God's love creates that which it loves. It's the crazy love of Jesus Christ that on the cross being tormented and beaten by people sick and caught in their own selfishness and blinded by their own pride. It's a love that is able to say, father, forgive them. It's a love that is able to look at them and say, I love you. I choose you. Christ's love creates that which it loves. And so when Paul is talking about, let your love grow in knowledge and in depth of insight through Jesus Christ, what he's saying is we need to keep on understanding who Jesus is and learn to love in and through him. Because as we learn to love in and through Jesus, we are no longer bound to these vague, weird loves that allows us to do whatever we want that allows us to twist love into whatever weird manipulation that we would like at the moment. Instead, that love lays claim to us and we now have to love in a certain way but we are freed to love in the creative, crazy way that God loves. Let me give you an example. In 2006, in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, in America, there is a Amish community. Now, uh, if you don't know about the Amish, it's a small uh, Mennonite, it's a religious Christian community. But the way they outwork their faith is they do a bit more separation off from the modern world. They try to. Uh, live a simple life without heaps of complexities or heaps of technology or heaps of uh, interaction. They try to live a simple faith, a simple life with their local community. A wonderful, wonder, a little bit different from how you and I would probably express our faith, but still a wonderful Christian group. And in 2006, uh, as they gathered uh, in a small school for their community, about a couple, 20, 20 or so kids, a man came in w- with a gun. And rallied the kids in the school. And they had this long holdout until after a period of a few hours. And the police, this man shot 10 of the children, killing five of them before turning the gun upon himself. And it just broke apart, this community. It was was horrible and it was tragic. It was senseless. It was evil. The only way you can describe it is evil and horrible as to what happened there. But the fascinating thing isn't what just happened with the shooter. It's the way this community responded and the way they responded exemplifies that creative love of God that is so different from what the world would expect. When they heard that their daughters had been wounded or killed, the families of these girls mourned and they wept, but then that same day, that very same day that they found out They got up together as a group of families and they drove to the house of the shooter. They went to his wife and they went to his kids and they wrapped their arms around them and said, we love you. We are so sorry for what has happened to you and to your family. We weep and we mourn with you. They brought food packages and over the next period of months, they cared for this family. And at the funeral of the shooter, which was only a day after the funeral of the families whose children had passed away, the funeral of the shooter, the entire Amish community went to the funeral to support this family, to support them in their grief and in their loss. And when news reports talk back about it, everyone is astounded because actually the Amish community far outnumbered the non-Amish community who were there to support that family. That is this creative love of God that doesn't fit into normal, our normal standard boundaries. It's, it's radical, it's weird, it's different. It's love in and through Jesus Christ, because this Amish family knew that Christ loved this family and Christ mourned with this family. So they were going to go mourn with them because Christ was there. You realize how this is why Paul was saying, when you look at this original group in Philippi, grow in knowledge and in depth of insight that you might love in and through Jesus Christ. Love creatively. When you think about your local community and each other, love as Jesus would. And when you love as Jesus would, then it's concrete. It can't be vague. It can't be abstract because there is a living person who is guiding us in how to love like him because he is here with us, filling us with his spirit, leading and guiding us to love like him, And so today that challenge still echoes through that prayer that Paul prayed still carries through to you and to me as he prays that we would grow, our love would grow in knowledge and in depth of insight so that we may discern what is best and remain pure and blameless for the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, full of the fruits of righteousness all through Jesus And so the question is, when you think of your love and your context, the people that you have to love, because all of us are in difficult situations, all of us have to navigate complex relationships and intricate patterns and different groups of people. How is your love? Is your love being shaped by this radical, crazy love of Jesus Christ? Are you washing yourself? It's why we come and we look at his word over and over again, because we need to constantly be re-surprised by the gospel so that we might love as creatively as Jesus did. And so for us, may we love as creatively in and through the power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when we think about love, it is incredibly complex. We, it's really hard to know what the most loving thing to do is. And we know that all of us have our own different versions of probably what that would be. We all have different ways of responding to what that love might look like. Lord, as we come here today, we want to sit around at your feet and we pray that you, Jesus, would reveal to us what your love looks like. In our own local context with our families, how do we creatively love the family members with whom we have deep, difficult issues with? How do we creatively love them in a way that goes beyond the system of retribution or, uh, you know, one for one, but a way that loves like you love Jesus? In our workplaces with workmates and colleagues, in our schools, with classmates and friends whom we find so difficult to love, how do we love them like you do? Jesus, we need to grow in our understanding and knowledge and our insight of you. Let your gospel inspire us to be of a family and a community and a church that loves radically and creatively, that loves wisely. Let us have a love that listens before it speaks, a love that comes alongside before it judges a love that takes time to look at all the different angles and doesn't just react, a love that is influenced by you, Jesus. And then through our love, through our koinonia, through our togetherness, as we embody that, we pray that your gospel would be continually preached and spread all over our world. Fill us with your spirit. Amen.